Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I've come from the land of Spare Oom and the city of Wardrobe. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and forgive me, Anna, are you what they call a girl? Welcome to Space the Nation, <laughs> where we look at science fiction through the lens of cognitive dissonance <laughs> and pneumatology. Today, we continue season three. We're in season three, Dan. I can't I quite believe it. It's impressive. With, with, Cold sci-fi winter. Yes, I'm shivering just (laughs) thinking about it. We'll be talking about C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, Upcoming, we have John Carpenter's The Thing and Tom Switterlich's. I feel like I need to say that with a Swedish accent. Switterlich. Switterlich's The Gone World. (laughs) I'm sorry. Now I'm thinking of Jamie Lee Curtis in Trading Places. But yeah, keep going. (laughs) Not the Swedish chef. I was going for Swedish chef. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which, by the way, people in the Discord uh, who have read ahead uh, have been talking a little bit about it and people raving. It really is fantastic. Oh, good. I'll it's say right gorgeous. now, this is the one, I'll say now, read it before before you listen to our web- website about it, before you listen to our, <laughs> before you listen to our website. Don't listen to the website without having read that book. There you go. And, you know, one of the ways in which you can listen to the website <laughs> is to become a patron. <laughs> So perhaps consider becoming a... And that is actually where we post some audio. So yes, you can listen to our website. Yes. So, you know, if you go to patreon.com slash space the nation, you can choose to become a patron for as little as $3 a month. You get, among other things, access to our AUAs or monthly AUAs, get early access to podcasts. And perhaps most important, you get access to our Discord, which is a lovely community that talks about a lot of topics beyond science fiction and poli-sci, including there's a sports ball channel, day jobs channel, there's an adorables channel. You know what? It's so adorable that even I, who have not done that much on the discord for, you've for a been lot recruited of time. i've been you, i've been slowly getting you know more active you've been you, you, yeah. and people just like to, we love to see you dan oh thank you we just love to see you indeed i i did refer to the discord earlier there's a lot of lively discussion both about science fiction and as jen said other stuff it's just a good community someday patrons will receive merch mm-hmm. not sure exactly when that'll happen but i have started the process i swear i have started the process and dan if people want to reach us the discord's probably the best place because you and i are no longer on twitter yes yet. i mean we're technically both on twitter and you know like you are you have stopped tweeting i am using it strictly to tweet out basically stuff that i've written elsewhere we are both on mastodon i believe and i'm on post i don't know if you've gotten there yet i am not on post i am on mastodon you should check out my instagram if mm. you are interested in following my doings and then also i have a website i do have my own website Ooh. that you can listen to you can listen to her <laughs> website yes at honor and i'm doing a bunch of different stuff right now i don't have a regular like steady gig well this how what am i saying this is my steady this gig is a steady gig I this am is my steady home. gig also <laughs> i am writing a book yes. which is a pretty steady gig yes <laughs> slow and steady i also teach a writing workshop which i will not get into in detail right now but if you're interested in writing stuff i teach a workshop and if you live in miami or we'll be in Miami in February. I'm going to do a live kind of pop-up version of it at a pop-up non-alcoholic bar, which lots of words together may not make sense to everyone. But if those words made sense to you, 
February 18th. I think it's like Sands a spacho, Anna, in that if, <laughs> if the things were the ingredients like on their own, maybe not sound great, but like combined together, like a lovely frothy combination. Yeah, it's a, it's a, uh, there'll be some froth. Yeah. There'll be froth mm -hmm. and there'll be some learning and there'll be fun, I think. TheSandsBar.com. And if all, any of those things sound interesting to you, check it out. Dan, I understand you have a thing that you're doing. I do. I have a Substack. It is called Dresner's World. I am trying to to see how it goes, despite the fact that it has been predicted that newsletters will come to an end. That said, it's actually going pretty well, and I would encourage... Predicted by me. Yes. <laughs> Hardly only you, though, Anna. But I think <laughs> yeah, the key thing true. to realize is that if uh, you want to subscribe to, to Dresner's World, please go ahead, because it costs you nothing. There is a paying subscription, and you'll get access to a few more columns that way. But most of the content that I'm providing for Dresner's World is available to anyone for a free subscription. Um, yeah, and I think that's that's primarily what I'm working on now. Let's get to the subject at hand, which is C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Dan... We've joked around and not joked around about this book. Yes. There are some strong opinions on my part. Yep. And in some ways, it's your lack of strong opinions. So I think in retrospect, the reason we're doing this, Anna, is because we come at this book from possibly the most opposite poles imaginable, yeah. which is not in a sense of one of us loved it and one of us hated it, but more... That this is in some ways, Anna, correct me if I'm wrong, a book that is integral to your childhood, whereas yeah. for me, it has nothing whatsoever to do with it. So you go first. Like, I would be a different person if these books didn't exist. Like, just Bart, I would be different. Like, mm -hmm. this podcast might not exist if wow. these books didn't exist. Well, I'm grateful for the books then. Yeah, it, it was the first science fiction I remember reading, like, making a choice to read I probably read some, you know, sci-fi short stories and saw some, you know, I love Star Wars. Mm -hmm. And this was definitely after Star Wars, but it was super important to me as a kid. Mm -hmm. And I am not alone in that, getting no. to the sort of why this part of our discussion. It is incredibly influential book. The IP is a magic wardrobe. Things come, keep coming <laughs> out. It's an endless supply of IP. It's been adapted multiple times for television, for movies, for radio, for stage, and for video games. It has a specific influence on a few different series that I'm sure our listeners will have heard of. The Harry Potter series, J.K. Rowling mm -hmm. has talked about the influence of the Narnia series, Artemis Fowl. The Magicians by Lev Grossman is a series for adults. Hmm. And very adult in some ways. What and by I mean, there's like sex and stuff. So oh, okay. I don't know. Yeah. Like yeah, maybe yeah. I mean, it depends on the kid. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> it has adult themes. It's it's a dark version of the Narnia Chronicles, and and something like the Narnia Chronicles exists in the book. It's about the adulthood of the kids hmm. who went on that journey. Okay. And then Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials is almost like an express response mm -hmm. and rejection. The impression I got reading this, Anna, was that in some ways I had the same reaction to this that I had to reading Asimov's Foundation, which is that in some ways a lot of subsequent sci-fi relies on Asimov in some way, or like Asimov's DNA is shot through it. And that was the impression I got reading this, that like, oh, okay, there, there are later iterations that are that are coming from this. And I think that it might answer the question. All of that answers the question about whether or not you should read this before you listen to the rest of the podcast, mm -hmm. because you will appreciate or not appreciate the rest of the podcast, meaning you will agree or disagree. You don't have to have read the book because you probably know about it. Now, 
in one of the ways that we differ, I would say, go ahead and read it, because I think that it, there's some interesting ways it differs from the public perception. kind of yeah. perception of it. But and also because it's so influential. And if you enjoy those other books I mentioned, you might enjoy this one. However, Dan <laughs> has a different point of view. Yes, I do. Which is not to say that you shouldn't necessarily read this. It is, if nothing else, it's a very quick read. It yeah. is a children's book. It is a book for children, after all. But the way I would describe this, I can't, as I said, Ada, you know, came to this as a, a, one of the first books of science fiction she ever read. I had not read this before. And I had not read it before in no small part because the book among Jews is generally thought of as a, let's just say, Christian novel, you know, book. And it is suffused with Christianity, and we're going to talk about that. But I think my reaction to reading this as an adult is the same reaction that I had, Anna, to the first time I went to Disney World. Now, let me explain. Because I did not go to Disney World as a child. I kind of wanted to. I wasn't super hyped about it. But, like, we, you know, we never got around to it. And, you know, I'll talk to my therapist about my parents and all that later. That's not really an important issue. <laughs> and an, an important issue is that when I did go for the first time, it was with my then future wife, and it was the first time we had visited Florida together. And the we go to Disney World, and I'm legitimately curious, because I mean, you know, it's a cultural phenomenon. I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely fascinated by this. And we go in, and there's long lines everywhere, because of course it's Disney World. And the first ride that that my wife takes me on is the It's a Small World ride. Now, Anna, if you are a small child and you go on It's a Small World, I am sure it is a delightful treat. It's a gentle ride. You know, all sorts of cultures. You see them, you know, going. My daughter went on it when she was a kid. She loved it, really did. I, as a mid-20-something adult going on it for the first time, did not have that reaction. I was a little more perturbed by it. I kept believing that there was a secret coded message within the song saying, you must kill mommy and daddy. and Or any adult that happens yeah, to be around. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And so it, it hit me in a very different way. And I think my reaction to this book was similar, not in the sense that I didn't like it or that I don't appreciate why people might like it, but because I didn't read it as a child, because I read it as an adult, and I will also confess, because I read it as a Jewish adult, and this book has some, you know... And not some, I mean, you can say it, like, it is infused with Christianity. Yeah, it's infused like, with I mean, I think that yeah, there's yeah. sort of... The ways that are it's worthy of discussion is kind of how it's, like, the how it's infused with it. Yeah, like, it, or we're, we're, this way. we're about to talk about how cold is it. I think we might need to talk about how Christian is it at some point. Well, it's... And again, I would say it's very Christian. It's yeah. sort of like, what is the intention? What's the right. philosophy? There's sort of different flavors of Christianity. Yes, and that's fair. It's the, what flavor of Christianity is. The point like. is, as a young Jewish boy growing up, I did not read yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Reading it as an adult, um, I understand sort of on an abstract level why people like it. I can't say I loved it. And so we are coming at this from very different experiences. Did you believe that it contained a secret message to kill you? <laughs> no, no, I did not. <laughs> unlike the Bible, unlike the New Testament, which does contain that message. <laughs> Although, it, it, well, okay, well, you know, we'll talk about the plot developments a little bit later. But but let's get into how cold is it. So for, yeah. for cold sci-fi winter, it's worth delving into just how cold the setting actually is. 
How cold was it in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Anna? Not that cold. No. Lucy has a, well, I read the illustrated version. It's not, there's not a ton of illustrations, but it, she's described as being just fine. In the in the illustration, she's wearing like a little dress, cute little dress. Mm -hmm. And she's just fine for her first visit. Like chilly, I would say, but not cold. And then yeah. Edmund wears short pants for his visit and is cold, but not too cold. So I, I think it's probably like in the 30s. Yeah, it is. It is. It's at least warmer than Snowpiercer, which admittedly is a low bar, but like it's it seems perfectly fine. And it also, you know, what, it gets warmer as the book goes along. Uh, and this could be because Christ is coming. <laughs> yes. It could. Or I'm sorry, it Aslan. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. I meant to say Aslan. No, no, no. That's staying in. No, you know I meant that that is a I, joke, right? I, I do. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. So let's get to the story behind the story, Anna. Tell me about this C.S. Lewis dude. He was a big Christian, Dan. <laughs> big Christian. Yep. And there's like multiple biographies of him. I'm going to try to hit the highlights, what I find interesting about him. Mm -hmm. Professor at Oxford for 30 years before going to Cambridge, medieval and Renaissance literature. He and Tolkien were good friends, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. I like this quote that he has about Tolkien. At my first coming into the world, I had been implicitly warned to never trust a papist. <laughs> at my first coming to the English faculty at Oxford, to never trust a philologist. Tolkien was both. So bad boy I Tolkien. love that <laughs> bad boy Tolkien, bad boy Lewis for becoming friends yeah. with him. They were very close friends. And Lewis was not a Christian when they became friends. Tolkien was. And Tolkien's one of the reasons that Lewis became a Christian. I think he introduced Lewis to a kind of Christianity that wasn't the in-your-face piousness that I think many non-Christians expect <laughs> yes. of Christians. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. People talk about these books as being allegories. As a professor of literature, he perhaps was a little defensive about the fact that they're not allegories in a literal sense. They're not like a one-to-one, -one, you know, Christian story. Like Aslan is not Jesus. Like he is and he isn't, right? Like he is the, the sacrificed yeah. hero, the sacrificed king. But it's not like he sat down and was like, I'm going to write the story of Jesus, but use a lion. No, apparently <laughs> he like he got the idea for a lion, not from any sort of Christian theology, but rather from a dream. He had been dreaming about lions. And also, according to some research that I did, there are fawns in the Oxford the freezes on Oxford buildings. And he had this image in his mind of a fawn carrying an umbrella. And that stuck in his head. And his goddaughter, uh, this woman named or at the time girl named Lucy Barfield, mm -hmm. apparently very cool little chick. And he wrote the book for her and it's dedicated to her. And I love the detail that People wrote to her, children wrote to her as the real Lucy, and she would respond. And, and later in life, when she developed MS, mm. she talked about how this being this being very important to her, like to be able to correspond with these kids and have this book in her life. And not a whole lot else, or rather a lot else. <laughs> 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 He's written a ton of stuff that is more explicitly Christian. And he has a very good book about grief, about losing his second wife, which is a grief observed uh, that many people consider to be one of the best books about grief out there. Although I would say, seeing how infused with Christianity it is, I wonder how welcoming it might be 
to someone who is not of the Christian faith. I believe it's probably really well written, mm -hmm. no matter what, but it might have a tone or an approach that people might not this is, this groove is with. Yeah. And we have to do Chekhov's What's It Now? Kind of hard in this short a book, really. Yeah, I had... Chekhov's fawn, which, because Mr. Tumnus, you know, makes an appearance in the first couple chapters, and we don't see him until much, 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 much later in the book. I would say Chekhov's lamppost. It's kind of a gimme. Oh, but... that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So there is so much to say about this book, <laughs> or rather, <laughs> I have so much to say about this book. We should probably move on to the plot, Dan. All right. Let us start with Act One. My, what a big wardrobe you have. So, during uh, World War II and the Blitz on London, four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, are sent away to live in the country with a professor who, like all academics, lives in a sprawling mansion. While exploring the house, Lucy finds a large wardrobe. Entering it, she finds the coats turning into trees and herself in the land of Narnia. There she meets a fawn, Mr. Tumnus, who explains that it has been winter in Narnia for ever so long because of the White Witch. He is in the White Witch's employ, and had agreed to turn any human over to her. Meeting Lucy, however, he realizes he can't do it, and sends the girl back to the wardrobe. Lucy tells her siblings what happened, but they don't believe her. Then Edmund goes into the wardrobe during a game of hide-and-seek, and enters Narnia as well. There he meets the White Witch, who calls herself the Queen. Edmund gets all hopped up on enchanted Turkish delights. The queen asks Edmund to return home and bring back all his siblings. Ed returns and curiously refuses to confirm Lucy's claims about Narnia. Only when all of the children are trying to avoid a tour group of the house do they hide in the wardrobe and return to Narnia. Anna, I'm going to confess that I'm legitimately surprised that you wanted us to read this book because, how do I put this gently, it features children and you generally <laughs> don't like children in the stuff that we read, and some of the children here are not very nice. Perhaps I like it because it portrays some children as not very nice. <laughs> I do like clever children, and these children are very clever. Yes. And then there's there is of course the fact that I read it as a kid, as a which right, yeah, yeah. You know, it makes it harder for me to object to the children. I should point out, or it is interesting to point out, that Lewis posted children who were evacuating London at his mansion. He did have a mansion during World, during World, World War II. Yeah. And so, well, there you go. <laughs> There's a plot. Yeah. And also, he's very much, he's sort of explicitly that professor. He never had kids himself. He was fascinated by kids, though. He, he liked them more than I did. He, there's a very cute story in one of the things I read about how he was having dinner, lunch, breakfast somewhere, and someone's, there are prunes on the table. And he said, I don't like prunes. Or and, and some child, like some kid next to him was like, I don't like prunes either. And they had like a moment of like convert, like, I can kind of see that. I, I can yeah. see, and yeah. he liked the imaginations of, of kids and their willingness mm -hmm. to imagine other worlds. And in fact, he said he was disappointed with some of the kids that came, not with them, <laughs> but he was disappointed to find that some of the kids that came through his home did not have a lot of experience with like what basically science fiction and oh, imaginative worlds. So interesting. Okay. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to Act Two: A Lovely Dinner with the Beavers. Once they realize that Narnia exists, Peter and Susan apologize to Lucy and crap on Edmund a lot. They then head to Mr. Tumnus's abode and learn he has been imprisoned by the Queen. 
They follow a bird to the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who feed them with fish, potatoes, tea, and plenty of exposition. They explain that the White Witch has made it permanently winter in Narnia, but without Christmas. But don't worry, Aslan is coming, and he's the king of the wood. The Beavers explain that once the four humans sit on the four thrones at Care Paravel, the evil time will be over and done. Alas, Edmund's still under the queen's spell from those magical Turkish delights. Anna, Turkish delights are like a baklava, right? Am I, am I crazy about this? I can't remember. I wish I could tell you that I knew. I have this impression in my head that they're kind of like a soft candy. And I don't like soft, like I don't like chewy kind of candies really. And so I, I never, for someone who absolutely adored these books, mm -hmm. I never got curious about Turkish Delight ever. Ah, okay. Are it, they like taffy? What are they like? So it, it according to Wikipedia, uh, it's a family confections based on a gel of starch and sugar. Yes, yes. And, and you say the word gel, and I'm like, out of here. No. <laughs> no um, gels. Yep, yep. I have to say, it does, and, and very often dates or pistachios attached to them, so yes. Mm. Um, I will say, like, reading them in the book, you know, perhaps a little bit more interesting. All right, so Edmund, still under the Queen's spell due to those Turkish delights, sneaks away to tell the Queen about the plan. The other children and the beavers, realizing what Edmund has done, pack up and head to the stone table to connect with Aslan. Edmund makes it to the Queen's castle, and I think it's safe to say she's not pleased to see him, particularly since she had ordered Edmund to bring all his brothers and sisters the next time he showed up. Armed with this information, however, she orders up a sleigh in hot pursuit of the children. Anna, um, how do I put this gently? What the fuck is up with the Queen's genealogy? I don't remember Lilith not being human, although I also don't really remember Lilith much at all beyond Lilith there. I know there's sort of like an aspect of this, and like there's a very small amount of Judaism that talks about Lilith, but really it's kind of Jewish mysticism. It's not really considered mainstream um, Judaism at all. More importantly, is it just me or are the food scenes in children's literature the best part of children's literature? It This is the one thing I have noticed like in books that I read both as a kid and as an adult, like the YA stuff, I love the food scenes. The food scenes are the best for me. I think that there is something about writing for kids or young people that brings out the desire to do really sensory-based writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is the best kind of writing in general. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that when we write for adults, we kind of assume... We assume a level of knowledge about experiences, mm -hmm. and I think that leads people to describe less. Mm -hmm. And when we're writing for kids, it's it, you can really get into like the touch, feels, taste of things. And in fact, I think these books are really well written. I just on a sentence to sentence mm -hmm. level. I was looking at Strunk and White recently. <laughs> uh, okay. Yes. And I think he he. He does a lot of what would what would please William Strunk and E.B. White in terms of his writing. He's very clear in his writing. He's very sensory based in his writing. Not a lot of adjectives and adverbs, but rather no just needless words. Exactly. No needless words. Yes. And he also does a thing that I really appreciate in fiction and I well, and also in journalism. And it's something that I try to communicate when I'm teaching, which mm -hmm. is 
be as specific as possible about everything that you can. Like mm -hmm. in the book, he names all the different kinds of flowers and trees that they passed. He doesn't just say like, we passed trees. He's like, right. we passed elms and birches sure, and willows, sure. you know, and when he does the taste, it's not just like we ate, we ate dinner, you know? <laughs> right. No, there's, it's, again, it's a, it's a loving depiction of that dinner. That was my, that might've been my favorite scene in the whole book, to be honest. I will get to the Lilith question. <laughs> okay. Yes. Which is, it's funny because she's one of the things that really, I don't know how to say it, unimaginative evangelicals mm -hmm. point to as proof that he's not really a Christian, but that he has a more occult agenda. Because I guess in mystical slash occult sort of writings, Lilith is a much, much bigger character. Yes, that's correct. That's also true in Judaism, obviously. Yeah. So that's what he's pulling from. And as you know, because you read it, I, this book pulls from a lot of stuff that's not really Christian, including having like nymphs and dyads. And also there's Dionysus, 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 whatever. Lord of yeah. Wine. He yeah. comes in. Dionysus. Dionysus. That one. <laughs> yeah, him. Oh, I wanted to say, reading it as an adult, more more plot type problems did occur to me. Yeah, including the fact, like, are there other beavers, and what would their names be? Yeah, the names weren't terrifically imaginative. Well, like, those names, Mister and Mrs. Beaver. Like, how? Yeah. Why would they? Are what are the other beavers called? Are there other beavers? Are there really no other people? That was another one. Like, what? Like, seems like really. Well, like, no. I mean, no... humans are humans. Obviously, have an important you know, given the prophecy that is in Narnia, like it's important that there be only these or that these four humans show. Right. Up. But it seems weird. Like it's like, it's even like, really? Like none, yeah. like no other humans. So anyway, uh, yes, it's important for the prophecy, but I, but I sort of appreciate that. Like a lot of children's literature, he doesn't even try. He's like, just, <laughs> we're just going to go. Although it's interesting because, and we'll get to this a little bit later. He's very specific about some things, as you say, and like, you know, and there, there are things that, that clearly matter here, but you're right. Like there are other plot details that don't really, either they don't come up or he compresses them very quickly. Another thing that occurred to me is the yeah. number of animals that eat with forks, <laughs> which require yes. an opposable thumb to use. That's fine. Like, you know, like that, that's a thing where in children's literature... <laughs> Perfectly willing to, to wave on. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Act 3, a surprise cameo from our favorite Gentile icon. On the way to the stone table, the other children see that the Queen's power is waning because Father Christmas has arrived. He gives Peter, Susan, and Lucy gifts that will prove useful later in the plot. Meanwhile, the Queen's pursuit is starting to drag. Because it's getting warmer, her sleigh is starting to bog down, and Edmund is beginning to realize she's a total rhymes with witch. Also, she's an actual witch. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other children make it to the stone table and meet Aslan. He explains the prophecy yet again, which means that they will need Edmund to end the White Witch's reign. He also knights Peter after he kills a wolf attacking his sister. The White Witch is about to kill Edmund to prevent her fall when he is rescued by Aslan's forces. All seems well, but the Queen then demands a parlay with Aslan. She invokes deep magic law, which gives her the right to kill traitors like Edmund. Aslan chats with her for a very long time, and the queen agrees to new terms. And those terms are that she releases Edmund, but later that night, Aslan has to voluntarily return to the stone table to be sacrificed in his stead, breaking Lucy and Susan's hearts as they witness the spectacle. All right, Anna, let's get to the Christianity. <laughs> let's just dive into this thing. I, I My... Again, my my 
their knowledge of this book, you know, made it seem that Aslan was supposed to represent Jesus. But here I will agree with your point about C.S. Lewis not seeing this as a direct one-to-one -one allegory. Because for most of the book, and he doesn't really appear in the book until I think two-thirds of the way through it, he seems much more like an Old Testament god. Or perhaps a 20th century divorced dad, in that he's remote and frightening, but eventually reassuring. Yeah, I like you. <laughs> I'm not divorced. You're the yes, divorced so dad of the podcast. <laughs> yes, there we go. Yes, I think Aslan is an interesting way to point out Lewis's interests are not so much Christianity as read in the Bible, like, mm -hmm. you know, Literal black letter Christian, yeah, Christianity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's much more interested in the ideas of faith and the ideas of grace and Aslan is, is a way of like kind of looking at that. I mean, he was a philosopher and professor of literature. I think even though this is a children's book, like he's kind of toying with some ideas here. Right. And yes, I mean, in some ways it is black letter, like Bible stuff, like the stuff that they say is could be straight out of the gospels, like when they're crying over him. Right. Particularly whatnot. when Susan and Lucy are crying and like, you know, stroking Aslan's yeah. mane, which I've got to admit again, <laughs> As an adult reading that, it felt a little weird to me, but like I, I get the, I, I get the the connection. Go ahead. Yeah, I think one of the other things he's exploring there is the idea that grace and beauty can be terrible, mm -hmm. in a way, like yeah. that a sufficient amount of grace is fright is terrible in sort of the Burkean sense. Like it is terrifying. It, it's just greatness. It's awing. Right. right, and that it, is the, the that's clearly the way Lewis wants you to to view Aslan, and and I and I will say one of the interesting things about this book actually is that Lewis is very clear. I'm telling you a story, and like occasionally he inserts himself in, saying, "By the way, you know, you'll see this in the next chapter, or like in the previous chapter, and so on and so forth." And that's a little unusual, at least you know, compared to a lot of the the sort of children's literature. And that part I actually kind of liked. So there's just one thing I want to read from the whole like Aslan's name makes you feel things mm. which is which is very Christian-y and yeah. I get it like it's a very like Ooh, you know the name of God Ooh. Yeah. but for most of the kids it's like uh, it makes me feel like I'm walking through a butterfly whatever like it's, it's sort of familiar metaphors for how God or Jesus is supposed to make you feel but but Lucy's metaphor is Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays, <laughs> which I have to say, as a metaphor for how Jesus is supposed to make you feel, I have never heard before. The The idea that Jesus makes you feel like you're on vacation. That's a pretty nice I like metaphor, it. though. Like, it's an appealing I like metaphor. It. Yeah. yeah, it's an appealing yeah. metaphor, but it is not something that I had seen before. And I I think that also shows a little bit of, of Lewis's playfulness with Christianity mm -hmm. and his willingness to kind of like color outside the lines a little bit which is appealing to kids too <laughs> so all right we were talking about jesus dan do you think we, yep. should we talk about jesus <laughs> should we talk about jesus some more i'm okay with not having to talk about jesus anymore <laughs> but yeah, I, I, have bad, I have bad news for you i know let's close with <laughs> act four it ain't a christian allegory without a good resurrection so, Susan and Lucy are despondent about Aslan's sacrifice. As night turns into day, however, Aslan turns from dead to alive. It turns out that while the witch has taken introduction to deep magic law, <laughs> Aslan has taken advanced deep magic law and knows that death can be reversed if a volunteer takes the place of a traitor. Psych! 
Lustrous and furry as ever, Aslan has the girls ride him as he heads to the Queen's castle. He uses his breath to free all of the calcified prisoners of the witch, including Mr. Tumnus and a very nice giant. They make their way to the battlefield, where Peter and Edmund and the forest creatures are fighting the witch and her gang. Aslan's arrival turns the tide, and the witch is vanquished once and for all. The four siblings are crowned kings and queens and are very wise rulers, even Edmund, who has recovered his equilibrium. Decades later, the four arrive at the lamppost that signified Narnia's entrance from the wardrobe and unintentionally pass through it and return to England. In a reverse big situation, they revert back to being children again, with no time having passed since their departure, and the professor being told all this assures them that they will probably enter Narnia again in a different manner. Now, Anna, a lot happened in the last 30 pages of this book, and that ending left me with, with many questions. But the most obvious, I suppose, is whether Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy are actually supposed to be children again, or is it the brains of mature adults back in the children's bodies? Either way, I was a little bit disturbed, to be honest. Okay, Dan. Okay. Of all the things that you might find disturbing about this book, mm -hmm. <laughs> this is not one that I expected to... <laughs> To talk well, about. I think it's because that, like, you know, in the because it's dealt the, with, it's dealt with. They, it's it? a dream. Yeah, they say it's a dream and they forget about it. So it's actually, okay. to me, it's like not in in further books they have forgotten about it. Oh, okay, all right. I don't know. Like, I guess the the point was is that like they really like what Lewis convinced me was is that time had passed and they had right. grown up, um, and like they talk like adults. So the the language is a little weird when they're when they yeah. encounter the lamppost again. But I'm like. Really? Like, suddenly, like, it's just a dream? I don't know. Like, I, I guess that was jarring for me. That uh, kind of, I, I remember that bothering me a little bit, as, too, as a kid, but it, I, the way, <laughs> the logic of it being a dream made sense to me. Yeah. Like, it's just okay. that they were playing grown up, and they have no memory of it for most of their lives. Hmm. They have no memory of that whole experience. Which is, they do for a, a little I while. I think that but, I find disturbing as well. Like, the again, like, you know, like, the idea that, like, you, you have this really important experience, and then suddenly it just sort of fades from view. I don't know. Well, it, it leaves a mark on them. Like they become yeah. like they're, they're like good people because they've had like this experience with like good and evil. They become Christians, Dan, so they're good oh, people. Ooh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I wanted to say about this very explicit parallel. Yeah, parallel, I think, is a good parallel. Is good. Okay. Parallel yeah. to Jesus is good, rather than yeah. like he is Jesus. Yeah. Is that in the book? Mm -hmm. the girls discuss whether or not they will tell Edmund that Aslan died for his sins mm -hmm. and they decide not to, which is about the most unchristian thing I can think of. Okay. So by the way, like having read it, the thing I kept wondering was whether Aslan had told Edmund that he was going to die. No, no. See, he didn't. Yeah. yeah. They say there, there's a place where they say, should we tell what, tell no, no, him no. what they talk about whether they should oh, tell I him. But before that, Oslin and Edmund have a conversation that we don't, we are not party to. And I kept wondering what Oslin would have told Edmund in that conversation. They have a serious conversation for sure. Mm -hmm. But one of the cool things about the book is not just his portrayal of divine grace. If you think that's cool, I sort of think that's cool. It's interhuman grace and the way mm -hmm. people can forgive each other. And I think if Aslan had been like, and I'm going to die for you tonight. <laughs> no, Edmund, it, 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 like, no, that would have that would have broken Edmund because it was already pretty broken by that point. So yes, that's yeah. entirely. I think it, that's but accurate. he experiences forgiveness, and yeah. the other kids are able to forgive him. And again, to not tell someone they were saved by grace <laughs> is like yeah, that's kind of one of the whole points of Christianity. 
is you're supposed to be like, and I was saved. And Edmund doesn't know he's saved. So anyway, that's just a very unchristian part of it. I didn't object to the ending. Although, again, I think reading this book, like it does put me pretty much in the mindset of like an 11 year old. (laughs) (laughs) Although I did have questions about fingers and thumbs, but. And yeah. like at one point, like the there's the the, the beavers are described as having gum boots in their little cottage. <laughs> yeah. And I, I really there were boots. Why would yeah. the beavers wear boots? Let me put it this way: reading reading this as a novel, the thing that struck me was that in some ways, the last thirty pages of this book, an awful lot happens. And I kept thinking about Tolkien in comparison to Lewis on this, which is that the interesting thing about Tolkien is that Tolkien can do Tolkien writes action I think better than almost anyone. Like there when you read the Hobbit or you read the trilogy, like he really has gripping like suspense for that. That is not in this book at all. You know, and particularly during the battle scene. Like there's nothing there's nothing that's that's there and I was like, "Really? We're we're almost at the end." And like, you know, it just it it the, I guess as again, as an adult, I was struck by that. That's the, the only way I would put it. It's funny you mentioned him and Tolkien because yeah. obviously they were friends. Right. Apparently, this was a source of some joking debate between them hmm. and criticism of each other. Is yeah. that like Lewis thought Tolkien was too wordy, right, <laughs> and too focused on like world building, and you know Tolkien thought that C.S. Lewis was like too simplistic. So like, yeah, I guess I'm saying I'm Team Tolkien on this one because like, yeah. it, it, say what you will about uh, about the trilogy, but like The Hobbit is not a long book; it's a short book. So Dan. I have a question. Oh, go ahead, Anna. So did it work? <laughs> <laughs> That's my question. I Anna, usually I ask want to you learn other more stuff, about but... Jesus. <laughs> Can I interest you in Tell Can me I interest more about you in Jesus. some Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid on that level. Darn. Well then I have I have another question. Oh, okay. Yes, yes, go ahead. Is there IR in this book? Anna, some people's knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. But if you look a little further back you can see that there is some IR in this book. There's not a lot, but there's some. The first kind of IR in this book is essentially political psychology and what international relations scholars call the first image, which is the way that individuals think about processing the world. Robert Jervis, who uh, wrote a classic called Perception and Misperception in International Politics, talks a lot about the human need for cognitive consistency. The idea that once we form an opinion or you know look at, at another actor and think, are they a, uh, an ally or an adversary? We are more receptive to information that confirms what our beliefs are and more likely to discount or minimize data that contradicts that. And hey, guess what? That's exactly what Edmund does. When Edmund sort of views the the White Witch, not as the White Witch, but rather as the Queen. Admittedly, there's some obviously enchanted Turkish delights working here, but there's also some Edmund, you know, psychology going on. And it was interesting because like in some ways the only interior you know, of the the children that we really get to see to any extent is Edmund. And Edmund clearly, you know, there's actually a a scene where Edmund is trying to rationalize what he has heard from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver by saying, well, that's not what I see when I see the queen. So I think this is going to work out after all. And it takes him a very long time to realize that he might have been wrong in the first place. And that is often what happens in world politics, where you know, you determine an actor is an adversary when it turns out maybe they 
might not be, or that they're a friend, and it turns out they have, you know, their own interests and might actually deceive you. The other way in which you see IR in this book is expertise and information as sources of power rather than more material factors. A lot of IR focuses on, you know, guns, on butter, you know, sort of explicitly wealth and, and military power as sources of power. This book suggests there are other sources of power as well, the first being information. And this is the weird way in which Lewis is actually very specific, because when the Beavers realize that Edmund has left, they realize Edmund is going to the Queen and is going to relay some of their plans. And they originally are sort of dawdling and like, you know, Mrs. Beaver thinks, oh, it's not that big of a deal. And then they sort of piece out what exactly the Queen is going to do with this information and then act with more haste. And it, of course, saves the day. At the same time, you know, both the Queen and those resisting the Queen are hungry for information on the other side's tactics. So again, props to Mr. Beaver, who I really do think is the, the hidden hero in this book. But also expertise, not just information about what other actors are doing, but expertise more generally, knowledge about how the world works. And indeed, that is how Aslan outfoxes the Queen. As I said before, some people's knowledge only goes back, you know, to the dawn of time. But if you look a little further back, which Aslan does, he knows the better law here and therefore is aware that he can make his sacrifice without necessarily actually, you know, costing anyone a loss in the sort of greater battle. And so greater expertise actually is an important tool uh, in foreign policy. Well, Dan, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> I think I agree that the beavers are the heroes of the book. The beavers are my favorite yeah. characters in this book, I have to say. Like they were, they were, they were good. There was one other thing I did like, which we'll, we'll get I to. I think I, I'm glad to hear so, there's other things you liked. <laughs> I, there are other things I liked. There we go. But Anna, I have a question for you now. Uh, yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this book, Anna? Dan? Yes. The Turkish delight is capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's all I need to say, yep, right? Yep. Turkish there delight, capitalism, yep. addictive, seems sweet, actually bad for you. So there's actually a real lack of capitalism in this yep. book in the way that, you know, rich white men can ignore capitalism. Like, it, it's but true. Like, yep. if, you, if you're the beneficiary of capitalism, you're not going to think super critically about it, maybe. Or at least you won't think about it as being the thing that we exist inside of. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing. Out, it's a thing outside of yourself. Like, oh, there is capitalism. Right. So it just kind of disappears in this book. But a lot of things disappear in this book. Class disappears in this book because this book is about the only four humans in the world. Right. So not a lot of, uh, I mean, actual political economy happening in the Narnia no, world, at least that not. we see. Yeah, at least not in this book. Yeah. I will say that Lewis himself had a more critical view of capitalism than you might expect. There's some writing about it in Mere Christianity where he talks about the uselessness of advertising and luxury goods. More to the point, he actually questions the whole idea of interest at one point in Mere Christianity. Hmm. He's, he points out that the Greeks, the Jews, and in the Old Testament and great Christian teachers in the Middle Ages all said that interest or usury is immoral. And <laughs> yeah, okay. He, he just points out I should not have been honest if I had not told you that three great civilizations had agreed in condemning the very thing on which we have based our whole life. So. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. You know, it's there. He did say it. I'm going to have to say now something that I yes. probably should have said earlier, which is there's a whole lot of terrible racism. In oh, some of the other okay. <laughs> Good to know. <laughs> and I was going to read the whole series. No, I wasn't. <laughs> Yeah. So there's it's it, it, there's some in well I'm right. still a fan, but there's some sort of 
interesting and very unselfconscious, terrible racism that I think Lewis then tries to redeem himself from. But if you're not interested in these books, then I'm not going to get into like yeah, the criticism we, and the defense. We can skip that part. So, Dan, I mentioned I, ha I yes. have a story about these books, a very personal story. And I'm just going to try to do a quick version here. I could, the very quickest version. <laughs> I read these books when my parents oh, were getting divorced. God. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. And we lived... And this doesn't have a happy ending? What? No, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. And we lived in a subdivision that had not yet been, like, developed. So there were, like, these woods oh, behind oh. our house. Mm -hmm. And I'm an only child. Uh, this was a difficult time. Aww. I used to go walking in these woods and try to find, like, entrances to Narnia. Aww. And what makes it, I think, what I feel for that little girl is I knew that wasn't true. Like, I knew... No, take it Sorry. Down. Like, I knew that was, you know... Right. I knew that Narnia didn't exist, right? Like... But. old enough to know that but like when i saw two trees that kind of looked like a doorway the way they were crossing like i would like walk through yeah. it and be like well maybe you know oh. so that's the shortest version but well that's a pretty potent version on it <laughs> yeah and i think i think that i'm not alone in that that is a service that escape, mm -hmm. literal escape, is a service that fiction and can that provide Lewis kids. Provides in this book and in the series, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's why I think it just they were so important to me, and it, it was almost I would say the first time in my non-magic believing life. Like I, I was too old to believe in magic, too old to believe in Santa Claus, and yet some mm -hmm. part of me still wanted to. Of course, and I. Yeah, and I think that is a part of me that is the part that wouldn't exist without these books. Is the part of me that wants to believe in yeah. magic. And that's that's a good part of so, you to have on. So I'm glad. I think so. I think it's my I think it's like it's a sort of a yeah. It's the capacity to be odd. Well, now you're making me feel better about these books. <laughs> But also, it doesn't have right. to be these books that do that. It can be other books. I do think that's actually what oh, Harry yeah. Potter can do for yeah. kids as well. So, so anyway, enough with the sad story. Discordant notes, Dan. I'm hearing discordant <laughs> yeah. notes. Discordant notes. This is where we uh, answer questions put in the Discord about uh, what we were talking about for this podcast. So, we have a question from David E. What does the political power structure of tetrarchy look like so in the end of the the book before they they re-enter the wardrobe there's just four kings and queens and they seem to operate pretty well together and i would say the lack of the conflict suggested went smoothly although i will say king peter the magnificent did seem like he was the first among equals maybe i'm misinterpreting that anna what did you see it's a fantasy land in which siblings get along perfectly <laughs> Which, even being an only yes. child, I understand not to be a thing that happens. Oh, that's correct. That is absolutely true. Yeah. And so. from Trent Diamante, what was a passage, moment, or theme that was particularly insightful about childhood in this book? Anna, what about you? I think Edmund's a really good character. Mm -hmm. Because he is both a bad kid, but also completely understandable. Mm -hmm. And I think if a kid is really honest with him or herself, can 
understand why Edmund behaves the way that he does. Yeah. You know, we've all had not great thoughts about our friends or our siblings. Oh, God, adults right? have and, had those thoughts. I mean, like, this is right, not right, unique right. to children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but I'm saying, like, it's a it's a sort of, it's a it's a character that you can both be like, oh, he's a bad guy, yeah. but also be like, oh, I guess, I, I guess sometimes I do act like that. Yeah. And then when he's redeemed, I think that's a really great message yeah. for kids mm -hmm. is that also he's redeemed and yes someone has to die to do it but actually not too like that's what i mean i think his siblings forgiving him that was the important is actually part. Yeah. a most important part yeah. of it yeah. and it's a model for forgiveness yeah. that is important for adults too yes Very and true. i think that the crying that lucy <laughs> susan do i know I know it's a little Christian-y, but also the way he describes it, <laughs> yeah. though, is that feeling of being wrung out when you've just been so overwhelmed yeah, the with sadness. I will say, uh, the, that was an odd passage for me to read, because as you say, it's, it's some, in some ways the most Christian part of the book. And like on the one hand, I, I did read it with a sense of detachment, but I did, what I did get, what he did effectively get across was the exhaustion that they must have felt. And that I I did find affecting. And that exhaustion from grief yeah. in particular, yeah. the exactly. way that grief can make you just feel empty oh, it's, because yeah. you've given so much of it. Exactly. Yeah. So what about you, Dan? Well, like you, I liked Edmund. I think Edmund's fury in particular, that, that felt real. But the other thing that I thought I, I really liked was... There's that moment where Peter and Susan realize that Narnia is real and that they had been teasing Lucy mercilessly or not believing mercy. Let me rephrase. Peter Peter and Susan had not really believed what Lucy had said. And so when they realize that Narnia is real, they immediately, like, I think almost shake her hand or like they very solemnly apologize to her. And what I liked about that was it reminded me is it, it gets at the way that children take their world very seriously, that there is a seriousness to what children do when they are interacting with each other, that maybe to outsiders seems very foolish or frivolous or what have you, but it is very meaningful when you are a 10-year-old kid and you realize I was wrong and I shouldn't have said that. And and so, yeah, that was the part there was like, okay, yeah, that tracks. I, I like that. I think there's something related to that that I'll mention here, which is the seriousness with which the professor takes them. Yes, um, I was going to, that was my, one of my things in the debris field. But one of the things I liked about the professor was that the professor treats the children as peers is the way I would put it and takes their information as at face value and therefore in some ways gives the best answers. And I can see why, you know, it's unsurprising that Lewis modeled the professor after himself because anyone, any adult would want to be the professor. Well, interestingly, I'm not sure if that's true. I like it that you think uh, that. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. I also will say that... <laughs> So I'm not actually an evil witch in real life, an ogre who hates all children. But the thing is, is that I get along best with kids who can play along with being treated as adults. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. And some kids can and some kids can't, you know, like, it, yeah. it, but I tend to relate to kids, I think, well, but I, I, I sort of play the game of treating them as adults. Like, I know they're kids, right. but like... I try to take them seriously mm -hmm. and, and that has worked for me. Most kids seem to like me. And it's funny because as much as I joke about not liking children, I do like, I do like that. I do like yeah. when I can play with a kid at their level mm -hmm. or our level when we can kind of meet someplace. Well, that's what's delightful about children. Yeah. 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 All right. Anna, it's time for the cold sci-fi winter <laughs> energy scale. Okay, Dan, on a scale of 0 to 100, because we're using Celsius. Right. Was this book a cold fish 
Was it colder than Narnia even? Or was it like a Kronal blast? Like, did it just explode up everything in your mind? I got to tell you the truth, <laughs> I think... I think I know I, where you're going to land. <laughs> yeah, I give this about a 35. I mean, as I said, I think I prefer... You know, in, in the Tolkien-Lewis debate, I think I'm on Tolkien's... I think I, I'm more inclined to Tolkien. And again, mostly this is an, as an adult. But, Anna, what about yourself? It is impossible for me to read this book objectively. <laughs> I just, I mean, just put it out there. Like it is, I cannot not love this book because of the role that it played for me as a kid. I recognize its flaws. I'll give it a 90 because, <laughs> I mean, it's just, but that's grading it as an 11 year old who's still living inside this body. Like, yes, my, well, actually the 11 year old me would probably give it a hundred. <laughs> <laughs> the 11 year old me would not recognize it as, as any flaws although i have another quick story about this book or this series which is that so i loved it really important to me had a whole like fantasy game i played with myself which again looking back i'm like wow like you spent a lot of time alone on <laughs> <laughs> we moved around a lot and like they were we yeah. moved and they were divorcing at the same time it was really sucked it really really sucked yeah. So in high school, I actually flirted with Christianity in a very like for a kid, I think for a teenager, very objective way. Like I joined a Christian youth group and I was like, convince me, you know, I was an atheist. My dad was an atheist. You know, I was right. agnostic. Like I just didn't I didn't have yeah. I, I told I didn't have any experience with Christianity right. besides like knowing it existed, following it on TV, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm trying to think if that's when I found out that the books were Christian allegories. It was very late in the game that I found that out. But. The other thing is the woman that was like the youth pastor for the group that I had joined tried to get me to read mere Christianity. And I was like, I don't, I don't need an, I don't, I was like, I don't need an argument. Like, I was like, mm -hmm. I just don't think it's, it just doesn't make, I guess maybe it would have, it would have swayed me. <laughs> But I'm sorry. What you were about to say sounds very similar to what my son said because my son is an atheist. And he, at one point when we were talking about this, like, and this is after he'd been bar mitzvahed, like, you know, yeah. we, were, we were talking about. It. He's like, no, I don't believe in God. And, he's, and he said, it just never made any sense to me. Yeah, like, okay, so to me, what happened with me was that I thought that Christianity was like there are too many loopholes. Right. Like, I remember, I remember having a very big problem with. So you could just say, I accept Jesus Christ as my savior, like when two seconds before you're supposed to die and it's it's all fine like that mm -hmm. doesn't seem right to me <laughs> doesn't i don't know like i think that's a valid it, it, i mean you know again this goes back to like advanced deep magic law or something but yes yes i think you know we need more expertise on and this. i still actually don't think that makes any sense but it's just sort of i have discovered in Christianity, and I think that this is something that Lewis actually did kind of do for me, in that he has his view of faith is pretty expansive within the Christian. I know Christianity seems like a narrow slice to most mm -hmm. people, but his vision for it has some room to maneuver. And so, like, I don't believe in hell, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't believe that people are damned. Like, I don't think you need to say the magic words in order to appreciate, in order to be loved, in order to be, a, I'm going to get a little corny, but I don't think you have to be a Christian to be beloved by the universe. Hmm. Like, I think all humans are beloved. I think all humans are, you know, have stardust in them and all the corny shit. So, like, I don't think those magic words are part of the deal. 
Anna, speaking of Stardust. Ding, 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 ding. Debris field. We're in the debris field. Oh, yes. Let's talk about the stuff we haven't already talked about, which at this point, do we have anything? I'm always surprised, but do we have anything we haven't talked about, Dan? What do you got? I've got, I only have, I think, three things. Mm-hmm. The first is I love the name Giant Rumble Buffin, which is the name of the giant. And, and I think, again, this is when I talk about like the last part of the book being very like, you know, condensed, it was like, this Giant Rumble Buffin character is really cool. Why isn't there more of Giant Rumble Buffin in there? Like, that was what I wanted to see. And so I was a little disappointed by that. Anna, do you have anything? You know, it's not cool that he tells the girls they're not supposed to fight. <laughs> it's a very gender, like, this is 1950s, like, you know. Yeah, like, I, I, I noticed gendered. that, you know, I mean, you also notice that when they prepare the dinner, because it's yeah, like the, the, I, the girls I, stay and cook, I, I you know. I have that like, underlined, too. Although, yeah, what, it's funny, because yeah. what uh, what 11-year-old me remembers is that she mm-hmm. got a bow and arrow. <laughs> Ah, that's interesting. So <laughs> and I actually did archery at camp, so that probably really <laughs> resonated with me. Yeah. No, and like speaking of which, like I kept thinking, does it have to be sons of Adam and daughters of Eve? Like technically, you can be a daughter of Adam and a son of Eve. Like, yeah. it, like it didn't have to be like that. Yeah, that, very know. gendered, very gendered. Yeah. No, the only other thing I have, and I, this is really picayune, but I'm not going to lie, the lack of an Oxford comma in the title bugs the shit out of me. Right? <laughs> It's the lion, comma, the witch in the wardrobe. Yeah, no, like, I, 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 I wonder what Lewis thought of that. Yeah, I, you know, if he's a professor, like, there are philologists around, like, you know, like, this is did, not, like, there's a reason why you have Tolkien an Oxford comma. Did Tolkien use the Oxford comma? Oh, I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, the problem is that, did he have to, I guess, is the way in the titles. He didn't have to in the title. Well, I so. mean, but in the book, I think, anyway, oh, God, I don't remember. we yeah. should just move on because we're not going to answer that question because yeah. we're not going to yeah. force people to sit here while we look at Google. So that's true. But that's it for me. You can Google Oxford yeah. comma Tolkien and probably what, find out. What about you, Anna? Anything else? There's a couple things. One is I really appreciated it. I, I almost laughed out loud when Aslan brings one of the stone lions back to life. Mm-hmm. And Oh, Yes. And, yes, and he said, "Go ahead." And he he's giving everybody ready for battle, and he kind of like yeah. does formulates the the way they're going to march out of the the witch's right. castle. And he says, "And us lions are going to be at the front." And then yeah. the lion that he that was a stone lion like hops around and is like, "Did you hear that?" He said, "Us lions." He said, us lions. He said "No, us that was lions. actually a very that was a great little passage. I agree. Yes, that was wonderful. That was lovely. <laughs> and it was it was just very cute. And I think I think he was a pretty good observer of kids. C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis. Yeah. And then I don't think I have a lot else, or rather, I have so much else. Oh, I know. Last thing. Last thing. Never forget to wipe your sword. Yes. <laughs> or close a wardrobe. And a never shut yourself into a wardrobe. No yeah, sensible yeah. person would do that. You know what? These are both pieces of the good advice, I think. And so, like, props to Lewis for actually mentioning them. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're actually done. Although, stay tuned for my own standalone podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, and Me. <laughs> <laughs> debuting next month in which I will just talk incessantly with anyone who will listen about my own experience with these books. Just kidding. Not going to do that. I bet that podcast exists though. And I'm not actually interested in it. It's funny because I listened to my Stephen King podcast where we talk for hours and hours about Stephen King. I don't know if I'd listen to a C.S. Lewis podcast. Hmm. 
But next week we will be doing uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Yes, I'm excited about that. And then after that, we're doing the Todd Swent Switzerling? Switzerling? Switzerling. It's the Gone World. That's the book we're doing. And until then, keep this channel open for more.